Uh, good morning on a beautiful, crisp fall morning. Uh, this is the uh, final lecture in our um, Francis Shaver Conference on True Spirituality. I'm so grateful that Dr. S. Wine has been with us. I know that we've um, been, been deeply blessed. Um, we also have a special guest. His wife, Jessica, is here with us today. So please give a warm welcome and thank you to Dr. Zach S. Wine. Hey, it's been great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, letting us spend this time with you. And uh, man, the sun does shine on the mountain. That's awesome. And uh, it's great to see that. Uh, we've been talking about doubt and thinking about how uh, doubt comes in intellectual ways, but a lot of times beneath our intellectual questions, there are experiences with pain and difficulty that cause doubt. There are also things that we want, just that we want, we desire. And if following the Lord meant that we couldn't have that thing we desired, then we would choose to doubt Him so we can hold on to the thing we want. And we've taken a look at that, and it's been such a pleasure uh, to be with you in uh, large groups and small, and dinners and things like that. And I want to finish out today by thinking about this, how uh, doubt can become a way of life. So the goodness of doubt, bringing it before the Lord and bringing all the faith you have uh, is a part of the Christian life. But doubt can move from discernment to becoming a way of living. And when uh, doubt becomes a way of life, uh, uh, it, it uh, hurts us. It harms us. Because doubt is his own kind of faith. To doubt something is to believe something else. So if I doubt uh, that the sun was going to shine today, that meant I believed that uh, the fog will remain. If I doubt that there's a God, it means I believe there isn't one. If I doubt, uh, if I'm the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, if I doubt Jesus' invitation to me, it's because I believe that my money will be more satisfying to me. To doubt one thing is its own kind of faith. And if you can see what you doubt, uh, you can also see what you believe. So one of the things that happens to us if doubt becomes a way of life is that we become cynical. And I'd like to think for a few minutes about cynicism and then look at a few ways out of it and through it close our time today. I was fascinated by a quote from the director of the movie Wonder Woman. I'm tired of sincerity being something we have to be afraid of doing, Patty Jenkins said. I'm tired of sincerity being something we have to be afraid of doing. This shows in the every beautiful genre respecting frame. She likes her movie, so she's speaking highly of it. But she says this, rather than skew dark or experimental like so many superhero films, Wonder Woman is maniacally straightforward. Nobility is real, self-sacrifice is worthy. She calls the nihilistic meta-winking that characterizes so many superhero films as a concession. And she says, but look at the world, it's in crisis. We have to do real stories now. And what she meant by that is we need stories of reality and hope rather than stories that are only dark. 
Why are our stories so full of cynicism? Well, it's because we're hurting, isn't it? To get real, to get authentic for the cynic is to get authentic about what's wrong, what's painful, what's bleak, what's horrific, what's fraudulent, what's untrustworthy. But the cynic is not able to get equally real about what's beautiful, what's good, what's noble, what's lovely, what's pleasing, what's wholesome, what's sturdy. I would invite you to consider that, you or one of your friends perhaps, if you uh, believe yourself to be authentic and a person who gets real, one of the questions I'd want to ask is, uh, what do you get real about? Are, are you saying you get real about hard things? I think that's incredible. That's an important part of the Christian life. But do you get real about beauty too? Can you get real about glad-hearted laughter and wholesome welcome? One of the things that cynicism does is tells us a story about life. You know, cynicism has a hero and a villain in its story, like all worldview stories, like any story about how to make life work. And uh, the villain in cynicism is hope, goodness, truth, beauty. In a, cynic, a cynical person's story, uh, uh, hope is like, the villain who comes to destroy Metropolis. Beauty is the thing to fear. Goodness is the thing to distrust. And the hero in a cynic story is suspicion or apathy, whatever. If you want to get through life, you have to say, whatever. Or you have to be suspicious if anything hopeful or good. These are the things in the world that it's wise not to trust. Now this isn't new. Uh, cynicism, doubt as a way of, uh, um, doubt as a function of a good life is important. We do live in an age of alternative facts and fake news. But it might uh, be important to remember that's nothing new. Uh, imagine ancient wisdom. Uh, little Red Riding Hood. Little Red, she just, you know, why, why are we tell this story to our kids? You know, that if she walks along the road, watch out for the woods. It's because bad things happened in the woods. Little kids could walk along and, and get hurt. This was an ancient version of stranger danger. And so she was told, and the kids were told about this story, that not all grandmothers are grandmothers. And not all forests are good. So stick to the good road. Well, the problem is, is we take that discernment and that good, uh, helpful advice, and then we make it a way of life, which means there are no real grandmothers anywhere. All roads are bad and all forests are dark. The Bible tells us there's a thing that seems right until you hear the other side of the story. There's a good, cautious wise doubt, a hesitation to wait. But when it becomes a way of life, you see, cynicism has its own bias. Like any other ism, cynicism has its own way of profiling, its own way of stereotyping. If something beautiful or good walks into a store, cynicism becomes hypervigilant 
to keep an eye on it. If cynicism sees something good, it stereotypes it. It's a remarkable thing for a generation that wonderfully pushes back on all kinds of isms. That we struggle to push back on cynicism. We push back rightly on racism and sexism. All kinds of isms. But cynicism, doubt as a way of life, uh, has taught us to stereotype anything good, dismantle anything beautiful, distrust anything wholesome, disregard anything welcoming, have a bias against anything that is happy, and to tear it down. You don't have to look to Christian sources to see the problem. The Scientific American, here's a headline, Cynicism may cost you. Having a distrustful attitude might limit your earning power. This article is about how cynical folks in business make less money. Psychology Today, is cynicism ruining your life? The risks of indulging in cynical attitudes and the rewards of being positive. <laughs> Recognizing that cynicism hurts relationships. Cynicism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You begin to do the thing you fear. The motto is like, if everything, uh, either everything is good or nothing is good. If one thing is bad, everything is bad. And it's the story that we begin to tell ourselves. It's the, the, it's the stories we tell through our art. It, it's the story we tell through our work. It's the story we pass on to friends and kids and grandkids. And it's the story we, we look at life to view it from. That if one thing is bad, that means everything is bad. There are no real grandmothers. There are only wolves. There are no good roads. There are only forests full of darkness. This is the story. And if you want a hero in your life, be apathetic. If you want to get through your life, distrust anything good that you can see. The problem is, uh, doubt doesn't count you out, but it can't get you through. We've already looked at together in one of our sessions of how in Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We've already looked at how the Great Commission is the sending out of worshipping broken doubters in the name of Jesus. So doubt is a part of the Christian life that we bring to him. But when it becomes a way of life, it can't get us through. And here's the reason why. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> you long for something pleasant, pleasing, satisfying, wholesome, good, beautiful, accepting, welcoming, full of peace, full of shalom. But when anything like that comes across your path, you doubt it. You dismantle it. You profile it. You're biased against it. You're prejudiced against it. So what happens is there cannot be any time in which something good can happen to you because you will necessarily 
distrusteth. Because some of us trust pain. We feel at home with pain. We trust darkness. We trust uh, hardship. When things are dysfunctional and unhealthy, we feel it comfortable with that. We're familiar with that. But when something good comes our way, we, <laughs> we actually call the good thing bad and stay with the bad thing as if it's good. Because doubt doesn't count you out, but it can't get you through. It has no capacity to do that. There's this moment where uh, the disciples of Jesus, they're out uh, rowing on this boat in the night, and Jesus comes to them on the water, and the first thing they say is, it's a ghost! That's amazing to me. I love that. They're just really human. I mean, they've been with him. He's been teaching them and everything else. But their first thought isn't, wow, God's coming to meet us. Wow, Jesus is demonstrating his power and his grace. The first thing is, holy, we got to, this is scary, right? And they looked right at the beautiful thing and declared it haunted. And I've just seen that in my life over and over again as a person who I grew up with uh, three divorces and five marriages. I've, I know what it is to experience brokenness from without. I know what it is to contribute my own brokenness to it, my own lack of peace, my own ability to break peace, my own ability to break what is righteous and good, my own incapacity to see it or feel it or experience it. And so when it comes, I say it's a ghost. So what happens is... When a promise comes, I'm with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Come to me. I will give you rest. There's no insight, no plan, no wisdom that can succeed against the Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will supply your need according to the riches of Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of His hand. If anyone sins, he has an advocate in Jesus Christ. And what happens is, Doubt as a way of life dismantles every promise. So that any good that would come to you for you to hold on to, you're just prejudiced against it. And moment after moment after moment, year upon year upon year, you become what you've trusted that is, you become a person because you've rejected beauty and wholesome goodness and sturdiness again and 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 again. You eventually become the person who can only sing the song, I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone. This is the story I tell. This is my art. This is my creativity. All I can say is there is nothing and no one but myself and there is no good in the world when actually it's been all around you. Beauty has never quit on you. Good has never quit. What is true has never quit. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so we find ourselves in a self-fulfilling uh, point of view in which we have all that we've trusted and the only thing we've trusted is ourselves. See, there's the arrogance 
of cynicism, doubt as a way of life. I'll try to put language to it, and you might have better language for it that you could help me with. It's something like this. Um, uh, the cynical person believes that they know what is trustworthy. They can tell you everything that's not trustworthy. Which means that the one thing you should believe is what they tell you. The cynical person comes to believe that they are the only one in the universe that can be trusted. Wow. And if anyone else says that anything is good or noble or trustworthy, they are not to be trusted. According to whom? Well, to me, of course. Everybody knows. And you didn't want to end up in that kind of arrogant, self-centered place. It didn't start out that way. You just felt pain. You were hurt. And you're trying to find discernment. But discernment means being equally authentic about the healing that could come. Cynicism is what closes down the healing. Discernment has a capacity to bring all the faith you have and all the doubt you have to Jesus. Cynicism says there is no Savior. All you have is doubt. So hold on to yourself. And in that, our relationships and our own soul suffers, not only with God, but with each other. Which means we have to learn, as others have taught us, to doubt our doubts. When you doubt something, you can ask yourself this question, why do you trust what you're doubting? Because remember, doubt is a faith. To doubt one thing is to believe something else. Why do you trust what you doubt? That you doubt it. What kind of evidence are you looking to to support uh, your faith that your doubt is right and good? A person who only trusts doubt and never has room for faith uh, is a person who's closing off evidence and closing off the goodness that's right in front of them. Because of that, our relationship with God is hindered. And now I just want to make a couple of statements about how cynicism wrecks our relationship with God and our ability to talk with God, to God, and about God. The first thing is going to God then is that when you begin to think about all that you doubt and all that you trust and you're going to God, the first thing that you want to do is pray his promises, not just your doubts. Just inviting you to pray his promises, not just your doubts. Or another way of thinking about it is, all right, among all the things you doubt, what do you trust? Can you name them? What are the things you trust? Can you name them? And then bring that before the Lord. I trust pain. Okay, bring that before the Lord. I trust this person. Wow, that's good. Gratitude. Give thanks for such a person that's trustworthy and step in that direction. Bring what you can before the Lord. But also His promises, not just your doubts. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to me. I will give you rest. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. 
You say that, Lord, I feel alone, I walk alone, but you say no one can snatch me out of your hand. You say that you will never leave me or forsake me. You say that the rest I long for is found with you. You say that nothing can separate me from you. So I'm counting on you to come through with that. Here's my doubts, but here's what you promised. And I'm vulnerable, and I'm going to lean into what you've promised. So you pray his promises, not just your doubts. We pray our weaknesses, not just your strengths. You might feel before God, God, all I have is this sense of mistrust and pain. I am a stereotyper of goodness. I am prejudiced against beauty. I have a problem with getting real about anything good and wholesome. Then you bring that before Him and instead of trying to get strong and then go to Him, you just plead your weaknesses. This is me. This is my weakness. And name it. I don't see joy. I can't experience goodness. I am so vigilant about what might go wrong that I can't receive anything that might be good. My gratitude is lost. My sense of pleasure is nowhere to be found. I, inside, am only trusting myself. Instead of trying to get all that figured out before you go to Him, you just begin to sound like a psalmist and you just start to say that stuff to Him. Pray His promises, not just your doubts. Pray your weaknesses, not just your strengths. Remember, all the pictures of prayer that Jesus gives us are stories about widows and children and tax collectors. Go back and look at his parables about prayer. And the heroes of prayer are the, the, <laughs> the broken and vulnerable people. And prayer is about love, not leverage. Life with God is about love, not leverage. And that's part of what's making us cynical. If if you only go to God because you have to keep the deity appeased, keep the deity happy, then we're no different than any other religion anywhere. If you constantly have to prove to the deity that you'll sacrifice enough to make the deity happy so that the deity doesn't come and do anything to you, then you're no different than any other religion anywhere. And no wonder we're cynical. If uh, prayer is only to get what you want, so you pray to get what you want, then that's just leveraging God for our personal platforms on any given day. If I constantly came over to your house and uh, asked you for things, in the beginning, because you're trying to follow Jesus and have compassion on me, you'd say, sure, you can have this or that, or sure, you can do this or that. But if every time I called you or texted you, uh, if every time I had something I wanted from you, eventually what would happen? You'd begin to close. Why? Because you begin thinking to yourself, man, this person doesn't care about me at all. They just want something. They're using me. And when you're being used, you become discerning, cynical in the best sort of sense. And you begin to set boundaries. Why? Because this isn't relationship at all. This isn't love. This isn't relationship. 
I'm a vending machine. And no wonder, if that's what prayer is, if prayer is i got to pray enough to get the stuff I want, no wonder we're cynical about it. Who wants that? That's, that's what any religion does. Uh, making sure they pray earnest enough. Making sure they constantly um, get God to notice. You almost get the idea that, oh, you know, uh, my, my aunt is sick. There's five of us praying, but we need, we need 35 to pray. We need 65. We've got to get 100. We need everybody praying. Now, at its best, it's because we're just inviting a community out of love to cry out to God on behalf of love for who we care about. But at its worst, it almost feels like we only have 38 votes. We only got 38 people praying. And God's up there going, yeah, you only got 38. I'll listen when you get to 40. Who wants a God like that? I don't, I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. That's just the God and goddesses of any religion anywhere. It has nothing to do with the God who became a person. To empathize with you in every way possible, yet without sin. So that out of relationship with Him, we could speak to Him as if He was our father or our mother. A hen, like a mother hen gathering her chicks, or like a, we could speak to him like a, a woman who's lost a coin in the couch and she's looking for it, and we're the lost one and she's trying to find us. He's like a shepherd and we're like a lost sheep and he's wanting to find us and putting us up on our shoulders and carry us home. We're like the, the child that went away, the son who. Uh, squandered everything and did everything wrong and we come back wanting to be a slave just let me be one of your hired hands a worker an employee and he says no you're my son you're my child come we're like the woman in Luke chapter 7 scorned by the Pharisees in their house and Jesus looks right at you and says to them do you see this woman do you see her? And for the first time in her life, a man looked at her in a pornless way. A man looked at her who wasn't trying to undress her or use her or uh, put her on a scale from 1 to 10 or anything like that. He just saw her and she was seen and she was known. This is what we preach. This is what we're talking about. We're not talking about appeasing a deity. The deity has appeased himself. We're his children. No wonder we're cynical about talking to him if we think that prayer is about leverage. Prayer isn't about leverage. It's about love. He's lovely. God's beautiful, wholesome, a sturdy good, pleasant, pleasing. Thomas Watson said God is a delicious good. Ravishing. The lover of my soul. I long for him to kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I'm just quoting the Bible to you. And we pray because he listens and hears us and has our good at heart. And we trust him that when we ask for bread, he won't give us a snake or a serpent. 
there is this moment in the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember, where one of the girls is lost and she can't find her way. And she's thirsty. She's barren. She needs something to drink. She finally finds uh, a place to come and drink water. But between her and that spot is a lion. We know the lion is Aslan. She doesn't. And he says, come and drink. And she says, uh, but you're a lion. Will you promise not to hurt me? And he says, I can make no such promise. But there's nowhere else to drink. Come. We know this is Aslan inviting her to drink. That he isn't safe, but he's good. She sees a lion and has to determine what she will doubt and what she will believe. What she will be prejudiced against and what she will trust. Will she step in his direction at his invitation to drink what is pleasing to her? And that's the question for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, your willingness to so humbly, powerfully but humbly draw near to us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would uh, deliver us from cynicism, recover us to discernment, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.